nature will find a way if we can just help it. So we mustn't be despondent. You know, I, I am and remain optimistic about the future. You know, we are an extraordinary species. And in the same way that we have the ability to do the damage, we can do the good. And welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Powell. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode, we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. Today, we're chatting to Arlen Rickard, OBE, founder of the West Country Rivers Trust and later the whole Umbrella Rivers Trust organisation, now their chief policy advisor after 25 years leading the movement. Hello, Sophie. Hi. Hi, Eva. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you. Good. Are you ready to talk beavers and river buffers today? Always. Always ready to chew the ear off anyone who wants to hear about beavers and our riparian zones. But before we dive too deep in that river, how are you? Ooh. What have you been up to recently? Um, well, I, I have to say I've become a bit of a weather woman, I feel. I'm constantly checking the weather. I'm looking currently on my computer at the BBC Weather tab, which is always open because the weather seems to be kind of a little bit more settled than it was over Christmas and I'm just looking for a good weather window to um, put my wetsuit on and get in the sea for a bit because it's been such a long time since I've done that but I'm hoping that as we edge towards spring she says tentatively (laughs) that that will become a lot more achievable. Ah yes the arrival of spring here it comes is there any better time of year I was actually we're off for a swim on Friday and we were topically checking the water quality at Clevedon Mm. um, which I think is a little bit more helpfully uh, safe in the winter. So that's jolly good. Mm. But yeah, spring is fast approaching, isn't it? It is. And by the time we release this episode, and this time last year, Eva, you were preparing your garden for vegetables and the kitchen for your chicks. I mean, what are your wholesome green fingered plans for this year? I'm always intrigued. And I think our listeners are as well. Become a bit of a theme. (laughs) The chicks are still alive. Miraculously, they haven't been fox food yet. But um, every day is is a win if they're still alive, frankly. But I've got a little prop to show you. Oh, hello. (laughs) So, the same chicks. Here's a little eggy. Yes. So, listeners, I'm just showing a nice... She's holding an egg. Holding an egg. like an egg, yeah. Look at the colour of that one. Oh, wow. Duck egg blue? Duck egg blue, but it is, in fact, a chicken egg. But check this Chicken out. egg blue. What? Okay, she's just uh, she's just held up an even bigger egg, which proportionally it's like the size is of a enormous. Egg. <laughs> it's almost Poor like a chicken. jacket potato. It's a double yolk. How did the chicken cope with that? I don't know, but I'm really excited about it. But it's a beautiful colour. It's like this almost sea glass sort of bluey green. It's olivey, isn't it? It's that is. So are you nice. gonna? Are you gonna? So, you know, uh, have an omelette with that? You just need one. I don't. One I egg think it's got to be a fryer, so you can see the two yolks by side oh, by side. Oh, yeah. Bacon and eggs. Looking forward to that. Well done, chicken. Weekend. That must have. So uh, yeah. So that's jolly exciting. Um, and I'm hoping that the nine remaining hens that we have will uh, lay an array of rainbow-coloured eggs. That's my plan. Well, so we'll see what happens. Listeners, Keep you yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch this space. And, and um, then um, I've just uh, saved, I've just ordered my seeds. So oh. um, the new one this year is cucumelons, which I haven't seen before. Cucumelons. 
It's actually Again. a thing. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I think they're these little grape-like um, mini cucumber melon crosses that you can just pick off and eat. Greenhouse grown. Oh, yeah. Um, can you freeze them and they make little kind of melon balls? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'll keep you posted as well. Please do. We but I'm going to get past. Do you know what I'd like? <laughs> I'd like a cross section of this giant egg and a cucumber melon. Forget beavers. This is all I want. All right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on in the news, water quality, particularly around the coasts of Britain, has really hit the headlines mm. in the last few months. There's been concern over legislation around how sewage is disposed of in our waterways. But the fact remains that 100% of English rivers continue to fail water quality standards, which is completely atrocious in this day and age. It's not great, is it? Even in 2020 alone, nearly half a million cases of sewage were reported in just British rivers. And anecdotally, um, it was really bizarre because this all started to kick off on Twitter in terms of actually having different kinds of alert levels for when the sewage was really bad in a particular coastline. And I remember finding it completely ridiculous having to check on you know map services that organizations like Surfers Against Sewage now provide to show the no-go zones as to whether a beach or area of um, seawater was going to be safe to swim in that day and particularly when I was with my nephews to be concerned about their health and well-being you know if they were playing down by the water's edge and have to check mm. a map before we go I mean it's why is this happening? We had that same thing for the first time last year. We were going to go to the beach and the, the mother-in-law sent a, I wouldn't go there, the, surf, the, the sewage report looks yeah. dreadful. First yeah. time ever. It's really Like beaches closing it? and yeah. yeah, it's mad. Anyway, yes, our waterways are fragmented and broken, not the resilient, protective and protected environments we need them to be. It's a yeah. huge topic and one we perhaps need a bit of authority on though. I think you're right. So without further ado, let's bring in the amazing Arlen Rickard, OBE, again, to answer all our questions and more, I'm sure. Arlen founded the West Country Rivers Trust in 1994, was chief executive of the Rivers Trust until 2019, and is now their chief policy advisor, as well as a passionate force for good with experience and knowledge second to none when it comes to restoring our rivers here in the UK. So, Arlen, welcome to the Lodgecast. It's such a pleasure to see you again and to have you on. Well, it's great. My my pleasure. Absolutely delighted. So, um, and and hi to you guys. Well, we're very honoured to have such river royalty with us today, and really <laughs> excited to share your expertise because of the importance of rivers and connection with beavers. So, yeah, thanks very much. Now, before we find out more about you and your incredible work and inspiring involvement in improving our rivers, we do just need you to judge this episode's Beaver Fact Off. Now, this is where Eva and I go head to head. We know you're familiar with the Lodgecast, so you know what you're in for. So we're going to share our favourite Beaver Fact of the week and get you to decide which fact you think is better or more interesting or just which you prefer. Okay. It's as simple as that. So here we go. My fact is taking us down to the River Otter down in East Devon. Now, in the River Otter Beaver Trial, there was a site called Clist William. And in just five years, between 2014 and 2019, 
that site changed from being classified as red to being classified as amber, just because all the evidence is suggesting because of the presence of beavers, this basically went from a site um, that was in habitat decline to a site that went in habitat recovery, which I think is pretty exciting. So that's my fact. Beavers can make a site recover, which is pretty cool in just a short space of time. Eva, what have you got to say? <laughs> You've just completely dwarfed my really puny fact, I'm afraid. Um, I don't think go, so. Go for it. I'm I was waiting. quite scraping the barrel with this one. Um, but <laughs> I think it's really good. I'm sure it's true. But beavers have a top speed of 34 miles an hour. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I assume that must be in the water. But um, <laughs> I thought that'd be quite fast. Quite an image on land, wouldn't it? I have to try quite fast to go that fast on my bike. <laughs> Beavers are speedy, as it turns out. There we are. Simple. Well, well, well that, I, I think they're, they're they're both very interesting. Um, now I have to say, Eva, I, I did you get yours out of a Christmas cracker? Because. <laughs> Oh, and I've seen beavers, uh, and I, I well, firstly, I can't imagine it would go 34 miles an hour underwater, and then it's and, I, and I'd really struggle to see it doing that on land. You imagine it picking up a speeding ticket going through town. So, so I, I think the fact is highly suspicious, uh, and therefore I discount it as a fact. And I'm going to I'm going to go with Sophie, but no favoritism. But it's, um, but if it's true, then I will stand corrected. It's, it's something I probably ought to look Homework for this than, week. Yeah, exactly. Oh, thanks, Arlen. It did cross my mind to wonder how they managed to record that as well. Um, the fact yeah. Zoom, what was that? that? Yeah, what was that? <laughs> was, was it on a motorbike at the time? Oh. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you very much. Glad that's out of the way. So, Arlen, you're working closely with us at Beaver Trust on our River Buffers campaign and, and film. And um, I wondered if you could set the scene for our listeners on and give us a good definition of what a river buffer is because you in in past conversations you've given the best version of this that i've heard as it's a very complex answer well it is a complex answer and i suppose and it, and, it, and it's kind of easy to be a bit garbled but uh, i mean the first thing is i think that what you're looking at doing in a, in a natural in a natural environment and it's very difficult for us in the uk because we have no real um, natural environments to compare with, but you can find them still in remote parts of the uh, Americas and that kind of thing. And what you will find is that rivers are really protected or buffered from the land beyond, generally through a series of wetlands, but also through vegetative areas, maybe trees, maybe scrub. Um, but typically you will find these wetlands associated with rivers. And rivers are just most you know magic and dynamic Things that you know, I, I've been fascinated with water all my life. My my great grandfather was um, captain of the Cutty Sark, so I think, oh, yeah, no. which, is, which is wonderful. Oh my god! So he'd sail the seven seas um, under the wow. power of sail and put up the fastest times between Australia and here, and and sailing with a small team of people. Anyway, the point being is, I think water's <laughs> in the, in the blood, and you know, I I ran to water or crawled to water the moment I was able, and I've spent my whole mm -hmm. life in puddles and ponds and rivers and and in the sea ever since. And it seems to be something that's in the family. Um, you know, buffers are really important, and rivers are very dynamic. So they they have a, an ebb and a flow to them. You know, they spate when it rains, and and they drop back when you have drought periods. And the wetlands help to moderate that, so they trap water and release it like a like a big sponge. Um, but also, mm -hmm. when rivers overtop, when they flood in a spate event, 
They're they're most erosive when they're bank high at the top of the bank. But as soon as they spill out over the floodplain, the speed just slows right down. It becomes like a big torpid pond. And that that drag of of the floodplain slows it all down. And all the sediment drops out and it creates new wetlands and oxbows and all kinds of things. Now, this is the dynamic habitat of the beaver. You know, beavers understand this and they harness this. But but we've we've drained 90% of the wetlands in England. You know, we have 10% of our wetlands left. That's an environment agency figure. And um, our, even our rivers down here in the southwest, which run from the moors, and, and our, the list their headwaters are rather more protected, again, are you know, severely denatured. So a buffer zone is, is anywhere where you get this buffer between um, the agricultural activities or, or land use, which is dominated by, by man, and it can be urban as well as agriculture, um, and, and the river. And, and they take various forms. But for instance, if you want to remove nitrates, for example, which is a big problem in our rivers, you need a fluctuating water table. So the, the wetlands the wetlands need to build and, and drop back. And that creates the right conditions for bacteria that will denitrify, take the, take the mm-hmm. N out of the water and gas it off into the air. For phosphorus trapping, you need slightly different um, uh, conditions and slightly different materials. And of course, as well as moderating our flows, improving our water quality, um, reducing floods and reducing droughts, those wetlands, those buffers also provide amazing habitat for a host of species. So all of these things is in that little, those two little words, buffer zone. They're all in there. Um, and uh, it's just vital that we start building those buffer around our, our waterways. Arlen, I've had the, well, we've had the pleasure of working with you on our upcoming documentary, On the Edge, which is looking at, at exactly this, about rivers and buffer zones and why we need them. And you told me something that I haven't forgotten, and I keep thinking about that the driest part of a river is on the edge, on its riverbanks. Why is that? Well, again, this is all part of the amazing, you know, hydrogeomorphology of, of rivers. But um, you're absolutely right. So when it, when a river is at its average flow, um, you'll find there's a, a gap between the top of the river bank and and the, and the height of the river, usually a few feet, but it varies a great deal on the size of the river and the flow and the gradient. All these things are kind of magic numbers. And, and the wetlands form way back from the river, um, often hundreds of metres, and typically they form at the foot slope. So if you imagine a sort of a, a valley situation where you've got slopes coming down and then a floodplain in the bottom, where the river mm. will have meandered across that floodplain, possibly over tens of thousands of years, you know, through ice ages and so on, and may have meandered many, many miles um, from its present course. But but in that course, that meandering, it lays down sediment across the floodplain. So that's why the floodplain looks kind of fairly level. Um, so as the river's sitting in that floodplain, it will meander. And over, say, thousands of years, it will move around. It's quite dynamic. But the wetlands fall at the base of the foot slope, because this is where the water that's come down the hill and percolated down through the, the um, sort of plateau on, on above. Typically, you'll see this on Dartmoor and, and Bodmin Moor. That will percolate mm. through. And where it comes through, where the, where the water pressure increases, is at the base of the foot slope. So typically, you have this natural situation. You'll see it in every river in the southwest and most rivers in the country, apart from chalk streams. What you'll see is the foot slope, natural wetlands occurring along the base of the foot slope, um, getting drier as you get closer to the river. And the last 10 metres next to the river will be the driest on the, on the plain. <laughs> 
And so it's, you know, so the place to walk if is, is next to the river, because that's where you keep your feet dry. As you go back, there should be wetlands. Now, the problem is, is that with drainage, and this was government-led, grant-funded drainage that, that particularly um, came in um, after the war period, and, and has only just slowed down, the drainage was put in, um, arterial drainage, sort of herringbone drainage, to drain all those foot slope wetlands. And instead of them providing a buffer between the agricultural activity beyond, uh, now the pesticides, the, the phosphorus, the nitrates, the sediment are all picked up by those drains straight from the field and fired straight into the river. So we couldn't have done a worse job if we tried. And all that needs to be reversed. It's really, really damaging. I can't tell you how damaging it is. And presumably that is a vast proportion of the countryside because, you know, so little is like Bodmin Moor and Dartmoor. Yeah. And as I've said, you know, the Environment Agency say uh, you know, 90% of our wetlands have been lost in England. Uh, and, and that's the bulk of them. Most of those wetlands, um, some have been built over, but a lot of those wetlands are exactly the ones that I've described. Um, and again, it's, you're not asking very often to give up very much land, but it needs to be in the right place. And that's the, that's the critical thing. So when, you know, to be fair to beavers, when you reintroduce them, what they will often do is kind of intercept that. They understand that hydrogeomorphology. I mean, the other thing is, too, is there's connectivity beneath rivers that you don't see. So there's this wonderful area, which is kind of really exciting. You look, sort of look it up if you, if you haven't come across it, called the Hyboreic Zone. And, and these are the gravels. So the gravels that would be laid down, often in that periglacial period, but again, as those rivers meander across the floodplain, there will be a layer of gravel and then sediment building on top of that. The water, as it's running down the river, you're only seeing part of the water. You're seeing the visible bit that flows above the surface. But, but beneath the surface and beneath the floodplain, water will be percolating all the way through those, those gravels. Hmm. And you'll even find invertebrates living in those gravels hundreds of metres from the river. You know, there's a whole ecosystem wow. in there. It's really magic. But because it also depends on those wetlands, you know, providing that connectivity and that flow of water through the system. So, you know, these are, it's kind of really quite a magic area. And we don't know very much about it. There are also lots of magic things too about rivers and their flow. So roughly, you, when, a, when the river is operating in its natural way, it's quite sinuous. Um, and, mm. and the speed that it flows and the sinuosity, like the sort of the bends in the river, will depend on the gradient and the flow. But, but also yeah. you get pools and glides and riffles. And you should have a pool and glide and riffle roughly every seven times the width of the river. So if you look at the river, okay. in a natural system, you'll have a pool, glide and riffle roughly every seven times the width. Don't ask wow. me why, but this is sort of <laughs> nature's arithmetic, if you like, about how the magic of nice. how it works. But when you're restoring rivers, it helps to understand some of these things. Amazing. Mm. And, and of course, you've been looking at rivers and restoring rivers through your life's work, your career with the Rivers Trust. So on doing a little bit of research, um, it's quite surprised to see your name pop up in connection with the High Street Baker Greggs. <laughs> I'd like to ask Yum. a little bit about that, <laughs> but uh, uh, that link and, and how and why perhaps you came to set up the Association of Rivers Trusts. Yes. Well, well, it's, a, it's an interesting link. So I started uh, working with Ted Hughes, actually, the late poet laureate. Oh, amazing. No way. Well, he was an um, amazing countryman, a very knowledgeable, keen mm. angler, uh, but very influential, uh, had a great understanding of the countryside. Um, Teddy Goldsmith, who founded The Ecologist, 
Um, he was one mm-hmm. of our original trustees. Um, uh, other local people to the southwest, like Lord Clinton. Um, we had a number of really wonderful people that were prepared to get involved and back the formation of what we what was West Country Rivers Trust. And it's important to kind of remember the the context. So this was in we actually formed the trust in 1994, but before that. My background was in agriculture, and I'd seen, you know, from being involved in farming, seen this decline in our countryside, the loss of the insect life, the pollution of the rivers, the decline of the salmon, you know, all of these things, the decline of farmland birds. And I, and I, being involved in agriculture, I could understand why many of these changes had taken place. You know, we'd we'd moved in my lifetime, because I'm getting on a bit now, but, you know, I went to agricultural college in the 1970s. And um, everything was about production. Mm. There was no space very much for conservation or the environment. Um, and uh, so it was pesticides and fertilisers and new varieties of crop. And we moved from, from growing hay, we get one crop a year of hay um, and hay meadows, to silage. You know, the silage is, is, uh, means you can take seven cuts a year. That means you can put on seven times as much nitrogen to get a response mm. from the grass. You're getting seven crops instead of you know, one crop of, of hay. Um, the the silage effluent um, is incredibly polluting. Then also you can keep more livestock. So then people have slurry-based systems instead of straw-based systems. So then you've got slurry issues to deal with. And we also had this move from spring cereals to winter cereals. So people ploughing in the autumn rather than ploughing in the spring. So all of these were Massive changes with agriculture. They were huge down in the southwest. We had new crops like maize coming in as well, which also you know created a lot of problems in terms of soil damage. So I saw these things taking place. We saw massive pollution problems across many of our rivers, many fish kills and that kind of thing. So we we wanted to try to deal with this, but also we had the privatization of water. So nobody knew what that meant at the time. Previously, it had been dealt with by water authorities, but the privatization mm. of water meant. We could we could look forward to hopefully more investment in restoring and improving our ancient sewer system, and that still needs to be done. You know, we're still fighting yeah. this one all these years on. Um, so we need to yes. deal with that. We need to deal with agriculture, um, and we felt there was a, a woodland trust and a national trust and a wildlife trust, but there wasn't a rivers trust. So that's how we came into being, and I was inspired by the. Um, the um, CBD, the Convention of uh, Biological Diversity, and particularly the Rio Summit, which was the big kind of thing in in my young life. And I was inspired by the ecosystem approach. There's 12 principles of the ecosystem approach. Now, we leapt into the CBD, the Convention of Biological Diversity, and started to talk about biodiversity, but we forgot about the ecosystem approach. And that basically are the tools to get the biodiversity. And it's really Hmm. about protecting and restoring the ecosystems that make it possible. So when we started off the trust, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to employ the 12 principles with ecosystem approach and apply it to rivers and catchments. And the concept of of rivers have to be dealt with as catchments. So when rain falls, it's the whole area where the rain tracks through, across down through the trees, down through the scrub, down through the fields, and runs eventually into the river. That's the catchment. And if you can manage that, you can manage this as a discrete unit. It's an ecological unit. And that's the magic of the whole thing. So you can, if you work in a community in your catchment, you can restore your river. Uh, and that's what we started to do. And that was in 1994. 
Um, and that was West Country Rivers Trust, which is you know now it's grown and grown. Other parts of the country said, "Wow, this looks cool. How do you do that?" So we started to help them, and I was as sort of chief executive of the organisation started to help them to form those. And I met with Ian Gregg, who was chairman of Gregg's at the time. Ian's an amazing guy, and there's a book that he wrote called Bread, funnily enough. But he started life, you know, cycling up and down the hills in the north, delivering bread, you know, through doorways. And they had one little bakery. And then they started to buy a second bakery and a second bakery, and he ended up being the chairman of Greg's, you know, you know all about that. Uh, you probably enjoyed their, you know, sausage rolls and the rest of it. Oh, so, yes. so, um, but, but Ian, again, another inspired person, an amazing mentor of mine and a very generous man. Um, and when he helped set up the Eden Rivers Trust, we came together in, in forming that up in Cumbria. And he said, well, you know, what we need to do is to sort of set up a national body as he said, you know, like it's a bit like franchising bakers, you know, and getting them all to come together. We need to kind of build this up nationally. You want a national movement. Mm. So he helped um, me and, and others to form the, the Rivers Trust as the umbrella body of the movement. And after 10 years at West Country, I moved across to, to lead and to set up the Rivers Trust as, as the umbrella body. And we cover um, the UK and, and Ireland. We have trusts in, in Southern Ireland, but also we've had, you know, Trusts and groups follow us and use our model uh, in different places around the world, which is which is great. So mm. it's been a wonderful success and for me. It's just an amazing journey, and I couldn't have yeah. foreseen when we started how, how how it would turn out. The power of pastry <laughs> and, and water. <laughs> Arlen, we can't talk to you without acknowledging the kind of tumultuous time that freshwater has had in the last few months with all the different kind of legislative ping pong that has been going back and forth in the government about how we treat our sewage and the fact that our water quality is just not good enough. What challenges do you see our freshwater facing in 2022? Well, climate change is a key issue here. Um, you've probably just heard that we've had the seven hottest years on record um, and and water is is a critical part of this you know it, I mean it's not just here in the UK but obviously around the world um, again we need to be reminded that we have such a high population density here in England we have less water per head less water per head than any other country in Europe with the exception of Cyprus really? and you could argue Belgium uh, that's wow. because the, if you take the number of people and divide it by the amount of rain that falls upon us, you know, we are impoverished. And in the southeast hmm. and London, where most of our population is, you know, we, we are in serious kind of water deficit. It is it is defined, the southeast, as semi-arid. Gosh. Yeah. And, this, and, and we really run the risk of running out of water in, in London. You know, there's a real risk without investment. And, of course, successive governments have not invested you know, water companies will do what they need to do to meet the contract. Mm. But, you know, the, they're only as good as the contract and the contract just isn't good enough. And the problem is, is that we're trying to avoid spending money. You know, the government are mm. now will be now looking at utility bills and saying, oh, electricity is going up and energy is going up. and We can't have water bills going up. They have to. I'm afraid they have to, because otherwise we're going to get in dire trouble. We need to make that investment. And it needs to be made in water supply. Um, so we're not robbing our rivers you know, of the remaining water that they have. We need to be building yeah. sustainable supplies. We need to be managing leaks. We need to be looking at water saving in our houses. And all that requires investment. 
And on the other hand, in terms of all the waste we, we produce, we need, again, a comprehensive system uh, to reduce the amount of pollution. And that means, uh, you know, again, working to, to um, reduce, uh, you know, things that go down the loo. And that's about education. You know, pee, poo, paper is the message always. Pee, poo, paper, nothing more than that to go down your loo. And we need to, and then we need to look at the sewage treatment works and make sure that they are fit for purpose, which a lot of them aren't. They become overwhelmed at certain times of the year. Down in the southwest, we have big problems with that. We have this huge influx of, of people coming on holiday in the summer, and our sewage treatment just isn't up to it. And, yeah. and of course, that results in overflows. And this is why, in often, you know, almost Victorian systems, when the sewage treatment couldn't cope, it, it, it overflows into a, a storm overflow. Now, this should only really happen in exceptional rainfall events when the, you know, the sewers become overwhelmed with drainage water. And the idea is, is that some sewage will spill, but because it's diluted, it's not going to do too much damage and the rivers are in flood. This, this is supposed to happen perhaps once a year in a dire situation. Hmm. It's happening every day. It's happening all the time because the systems are just up, up to it. And often that is quite raw sewage discharging into quite low rivers. So, so this is hugely damaging and we have to have investment to deal with this. And there's no way around it, I'm afraid. We simply have to make that investment. So um, it's, I'm very, you know, a very, well, as you can tell, I'm very concerned about it. It worries me a great mm. deal. And this is also part of building resilience against climate change because, yeah. you know, if we want to reduce floods and droughts, we also need to restore the natural environment. And I come back to our wetlands, our buffers and our mm. soils. You know, so and we have this again, this um, four in a thousand, so 0.4 percent. If we increase the organic matter in soils by 0.4 percent, that would remove all the carbon we've produced in the last 50 years. You know, it would take us right back to that. That's all it is. Mm. But we're hmm. we're damaging soils, uh, you know, and we're we have no policies in place really yet to deal with that. So these things are critical. Only 14 percent of our rivers are at good ecological status. In other words, only 14 percent. Or, or, or deemed to be good or acceptable. That's a minimum. Mm. Um, that's that's using the ecological. If you look at the chemical, not a single river in England mm. meets meets the good status because of chemical yeah. pollution. So you know we're we're in a bad place, and climate change will make it worse. And this is not just an issue for wildlife; it's an issue for people. People will be flooded out of their homes. People will run out of water. And it is it is critical, and we need to make those investments now. So I'm relying on the young, and it seems to me extraordinary as someone whose whose generation has trashed the planet. This is my generation, you know, have trashed the planet. That it's up to the young now to go forward, and it, it's extraordinary in this world that our best hope lies with a you know a frail teenager, you know, Greta Thunberg, really. Mm, it is extraordinary. So this is very interesting because it's something that I'm quite passionate about at the moment: the climate. Um, action and response and i think that we are you you just said i'm relying on the young and i think a lot of people are relying on the young but they're not in a position of power yet to do things about it and so um they have they're saying the right things and they are leading but they don't have the execution ability to act Mm. on it in the time frame that it needs action so what more do you think that we as rivers trust beavers trust or communities can do to nudge the policy and nudge the action um you know because you've just painted that picture so well of the dire straits we're in and it's really really vital that change happens dramatically 
this year, not, you know, by 2030. All those are just time-wasting statements. Mm. How can we How can we do more? What do you think Beaver Trust could do to mobilise more, as well as our films and some campaigns? And I'd love your thoughts on all that. Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, as, you, as you get older, uh, and I'm getting older, you, you do become more sort of frustrated because I've been at this for years now. I've met so many ministers and so many different parties uh, and, and dealt with so many different you know, policies that was going to deal with some of this. And of course, they're all just kicking the can down the road because it's basically what happens in the next five years. Can we get away with that? And then someone else will have to pick up that level of investment. And um, you know, we're running out of time. So I, I agree entirely with you that it, like my generation, what we can do is to step aside for young people. We can try to create, you know, policies that will empower them. And, you know, so much of our work, you know, I talk about environmental movement as a whole, your work in the Beaver Trust, our work at the Rivers Trust, and, and right across, you know, sort of the, the NGO movement, which is very powerful in the UK. It is mm. about empowering mm. people. It's about informing communities so they can make decisions for themselves and empowering people, and particularly empowering the young or, or disadvantaged. But but we, we do have to look at that. It's the politics of it. And and to be honest, um, I mean, I've been very fortunate to work a lot in Europe, and that's something else I miss. You know, I'm not making a political point here, but all of our legislation in the UK, all of our environmental legislation, frankly, is European. It's not ours. We've done nothing. Mm to protect our environment. It's all been mm. left down to Europe. So now we're not governed by Europe. We've really got to take responsibility for this and not shirk the task. Um, you know, it's, we can't blame it on somebody else now. Um, but, but I've learned so much from our European colleagues, but they are more political. So they will join a political party like a Green Party to make their point. And they will mm. demand that their local government will, will deliver things. Now, in the UK, um, what we tend to do is to get frustrated with the politics and join an NGO and then try to you know, make our voice heard and deliver through that. Now, that's good. And that means we have an immensely powerful charitable and NGO movement here in the UK. But we, you know, we're disconnected a bit from that politics. And I'm, I'm afraid to say we need to get more involved in politics and we need to push mm-hmm. these policies through. And people will have to make those investments. But the rewards are great, you know, not just for ourselves, because we will have better lives, you know, better green, blue space, healthier lives, hmm. you know, more enjoyable. We'll feel we're getting more from it. The quality of life can improve, but we're protecting the future for our children and grandchildren. So, you know, th- this is this is critical and we've just all got to work together. And that's why, you know, we're, we're teaming up, you know, Rivers Trust and Beavers Trust and, and others in the sort of wildlife link family are we're all teaming up to try to pin the government down, pin the politicians down. But equally, you have to win over the electorate. You know, we, we voted this, uh. this government in and we'll vote other governments in in the future. And we need to just get people there that are prepared to drive these policies through. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Good, great answer. With all our guests for this series, we're focusing on hope. And you've touched on this a little here. Um as I'm sure you can relate, you know, you can talk about the environment a lot and end up feeling quite gloomy about it all. But there's often, you know, there's a lot of good things to celebrate too. What gives you hope for the future? Well, as, as I say, I, I, we're very fortunate. Um, the, the, the people in the Rivers Trust are kind of, they're very kind to me. We've got lots of really young, bright people from all, you know, different backgrounds. 
And, and I'm kind of amazed at the new, you know, the new technologies and, and the new communications and um, the tools that we have to use now. And they're very kind to me because I don't always understand all of this. Um, and, and that all gives me hope. As I say, I think there is hope with the young. And I see you know, my son and I have a granddaughter and, and I, I'm hopeful. But I do see, and I see this in my son, who works in the movement as well, uh, you know, this sort of generational shift of, of shifting baselines. And the trouble is, I will say, well, when I was a boy, you know, I used to go out <laughs> and there was salmon in the river and, you know, there were insects everywhere and, you know, there were insects all stuck on the car windscreen and all that. And, you know, we would hear, you know, nightingales and you'd lie in a meadow and it was alive with insects. You know, so much of that is gone. And it's not just it's not just the kind of ramblings of old men like me. This is true. And we mustn't let we mustn't let our our ambition fall. Because you know, we always tend to just measure things we've seen in our own lifetime. And I can remember my father telling me similar stories and me sort of poo-pooing it and saying, Oh well, sure, surely there weren't that many birds about, or surely there weren't, you know, there weren't that many insects. But but anyway, I'm just saying that, that we mustn't let that slip. So so the things that inspire me is here on our farm, and I see this on other other farms. Um, you know, we've created a number of ponds, so we've restored a lot of wetlands, as you might imagine. So I'm kind of, you know, half man, half beaver. I'm always like digging ponds. <laughs> so it's funny, really. Um, but you know, it, it does make a huge difference. You know, we we, yeah. we haven't you know, we've never spread any fertilizer on the land, but you know, we graze sheep and, and we produce a very good lamb crop of wonderful. Um, you know, lamb, which is which is good for if people want to eat it um, every year, mm. and because we're all grassland, you know, eighty percent of wildlife depends on grassland as part of its ecosystem, part of its life cycle. So grassland's important, and so grazing animals are important. You know, so it's not just about things like well, we stop eating dairy or we stop eating meat. It's much more complex. We have to get the right balance of everything. But I do see on our own farm things, you know, things improving. And if we could, uh, and, and yet still the farm is productive. And um, also, you know, because of the work we're doing, we're helping to protect communities downstream. You know, our, our river here, the headwaters of a river where we are, um, you know, the downstream will be cleaner. We'll, we'll have more drought resilience, more flood resilience. So, so mm. we can do this everywhere. And I, but I, the nature will find a way if we can just help it. <laughs> so we mustn't be despondent. You know, I, I am... I, I am and remain optimistic about the future. You know, we are an extraordinary species. And in the same way that we have the ability to do the damage, we can do the good. And as I mentioned, we're, we're off grid here. So I, I have no power, you know, other than the solar energy that I generate. You know, we, we pump our own water. We have our own septic tank. You know, everything is kind of Amazing. enclosed, self, self-contained mm. here. And yet we, you know, we operate really, really well, you know, and um, I know everyone can't do that, but we can move towards sustainable systems. So, you know, renewable energy and the rest, it's, it's all within our grasp. We just need to make that step. Well, it gives me great hope that you have hope, given all you know. Um, mm. we, we must wrap shortly, but I just wanted to see if you had any um, amusing or lighthearted beaver anecdotes to share with us. Have you, have you come across them? On your travels and, and locally, as I mentioned, we're, we're here on Bobbin Moor, and and um, you know, I, I mean, not many miles away from me uh, is um, Robin Hanbury Tennyson. He's he's on the sort of next next little upland across the way, uh, and we're in the headwaters here of some amazing rivers, the River Liner, which is where I am, but we also have um, you know the River Innie, it runs back down into the oh, Tamar, yeah. um, and uh, just the other side you have the River Foy and the Camel. So these are all amazing rivers. Now on the headwaters of 
the the um, tributaries of, of the Tamar, we have um, beavers present. And I came across them first some years ago. Um, these are ones that have mysteriously appeared. I'm not quite sure where they originated. So, But they are living wild. And um, when I first came across the prints of, of the beaver and then some vegetation which had been chewed, you know, characteristically and the rest of it, I was just amazed. And of course, then I spent some time, you know, until I actually saw the beaver. And I was very thrilled, you know, to take my wife down and I confidently went to where I thought this was going to be. <laughs> and, and she was full of scepticism, you know, about this. And I said, no, 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 this is, I, I've seen, I've seen the tracks here and I've seen where it's pulling these branches down. There's a slide down the bank and into the river and pulling <laughs> the branches and stripping the branches and everything. And I said, you know, we'll creep down here. Uh, and we did. We, uh, we just went down there once. I took nice. it down and there we were. And we filmed the, the beaver working on the land, in the water. Amazing. So, so she thinks I'm kind of the beaver whisperer. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to put her up. That's going to be the name of this episode. <laughs> Arlen Rickard, the beaver whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have a string of people lining up <laughs> to come and be shown where they are. Thank you so much, Arlen. It's been brilliant to talk to you, as expected. And yeah. uh, we look forward to sharing all this knowledge and hopefully motivating facts with our listeners. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. No, it's been a, it's been a joy and uh, lovely to talk to you all and, and my pleasure. And just keep up all the good work, everybody. And don't, don't be despondent. You know, we've got a bright future. Wow, it was so good to hear what Arlen had to say. His holy trinity of water, soil and air. I mean, we could, yeah, we could I have love branched that. off into so many different subjects there. Absolutely amazing. Oh, I thought you were going to say we could have branched off into so many different trees. I should have. I missed one there. Next time. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> no, what a legend and just such an incredibly interesting mm. career and so humble and... If anyone's going to get you into rivers, it'll be Arlen, yeah, for sure. Totally. Gosh, I can't wait to share this one with everyone. Oh, hello, it's quiz time. That was very musical. Emma's coming out of her yeah. box. Thank you. Hello. I'm worried that listeners really believe I live in a box now. <laughs> a box full of toast. <laughs> no, I think what they're imagining is some kind of beaver trap and we sort of lift the grate and you've got a carrot there that you've been munching on while you've been waiting and producing. In the six months between seasons, you just keep me in a little crate and feeding me vegetables. Yeah, yeah. you're well fed. <laughs> She's well fed. She's looking good. Um, Eva, your turn to be quiz master, is it not? What have you got for us? It is indeed. And um, today I'm keeping it topical. So we're going straight back to rivers like we did in the first series um, nice. with three very simple and engaging questions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All about rivers. The bar high. Yeah. Nice. So, ladies, question one, which of these is Europe's longest river? Is it oh A, the Volga? B, the Danube. C, the Elbe. Not Elbe. Uh, I don't know where the Elbe is. I Vol haven't heard of that Volga. one. I know the Volga's in, in Russia, but I don't... I'm going to lay my flag on the Danube. I'm going to say... What flag are you flying today? <laughs> the beaver producer flag. <laughs> iconic one. <laughs> flying proudly um, on the Danube. I'm going to say the, the, the Volga because I've never heard of it before. Just to be different. The answer the is indeed A, the Volga. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well played. Oh, really? Well played, Sophie. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, so much thought went into that. Well done. Plant, well Thank planted you. in the flag department. Where is that? Where is the Volga? Oh, don't ask me geography questions. <laughs> <laughs> Question two, moving very swiftly on. Which river derives its name from the Anglo-Saxon for boundary river? Mm. Is it A, the Mersey, B, the Severn, or C, 
Tyne. Well, how is your Anglo-Saxon? How is my Anglo-Saxon? How is my river? All of these are not playing to my strengths, Eva. I haven't got a clue. Well, I'm going to say the River Severn because it goes, it flip-flops between Wales and England. So I'm going to say, and I feel like there was a lot of Anglo-Saxon activity going along in those locations. So that's, that's, that's. I'm absolutely loving your theory. Emma, what are you going to go for? I'll go for the time then so that we've got different answers. (laughs) That's usually my strategy. (laughs) Well, interestingly, it was in fact the Mersey. Oh, both of us. So uh, neither of you get a point there. Bad scene. Uh, Perhaps you'll claw something back on three. I liked your logic. It was excellent. You had had a very intelligent logic. I was really impressed by it. I was quite convinced. We should almost give you a point for the logic alone. Um, Question three. Which was the first river in the world to be granted the same legal rights as a human being? Was it A, (laughs) the fly in Papua New Guinea? Was it B, the Wanganui in in New Zealand? Or C, none have actually been granted the same legal rights yet? Can I just ask what our legal rights are as human beings? No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) But it's my human rights. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, they're many I'm, and varied is the answer oh to that. Oh, my Lord. I'm, I'm going to say the last one because I feel like it's a preposterous thing. I'm going to go New Zealand because I feel like they're quite forward thinking and protect oh, quite a lot of their mm. land, maybe. Mm, I don't mean preposterous as in rivers shouldn't, but as in like as if humans would have the knowledge to do that. Yeah, that is a bit not a fair point. point. It's a fair call. Mm. Interestingly, it is in, in fact B, New Zealand oh, in yes. 2017, oh. granted the Wanganui, <laughs> same legal rights as a human being. It's, it's wow. essentially, it means that you can defend things like, you know, attacks on it or pollution, you know, it, it deserves a right for mm, all the really safety and environmental. I like that. Fascinating. Mm. Really, really cool. I mean, imagine if the Y had the same legal rights as a human being. It would be taking all sorts of people to court right now. <laughs> Nobody would be throwing sewage at it. Oh. Yeah, well, wow, well done. Well done, New Zealand. Good quiz. Good quiz. Yeah, nice one. Enjoyed that. I feel like I, I had a little trip around the world. Oh, marvellous. Well, that's quite enough for this episode of The Lodgecast. We're releasing our episodes weekly, don't forget, so you really don't have long to wait at all for the next instalment from Beaver Trust. No, you don't. So we're going to see you next Tuesday when we'll be chatting to Emily Knight, a renowned broadcast journalist, producer and presenter of some of the BBC's most popular nature radio shows and podcasts. That should be full of fun. So make sure you've subscribed to The Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice so that you don't miss it. And for more from Beaver Trust, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Beaver Trust and head over to our website, beavertrust.org and sign up to our free newsletter. Also, don't forget that to celebrate this series, we're giving away a few copies of Derek Gow's book, Bringing Back the Beaver, all about his experience of reintroducing beavers in the UK. You know the drill now, listeners. So to get your hands on a copy, you can post about how much you love The Lodgecast by tagging at Beavertrust and using hashtag The Lodgecast on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and email us a screen grab so that we know it was you and email us info at beavertrust.org. We will announce the winners at the end of the series. See you next week. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust. 